Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Ravi Rao. Ravi Rao is a globally known expert in the application of emotional neuroscience to transform corporate leadership and customer experience. Attendees across five continents have participated in his workshop sessions. His clients include Fortune 500 companies in life sciences, entertainment, travel, and insurance. He is the author of Emotional Business, Inspiring Human Connectedness to Grow Earnings and the Economy, which peaked at number nine on Amazon's hot new releases in business in 2012. Dr. Rao received his academic training at Johns Hopkins and was a pediatric neurosurgery resident at the Children's Hospital of Boston, where he received the award for excellence in teaching of surgery from Harvard Medical School. He was formerly with management consulting firm McKinsey and Company for five years. Ravi is based in Los Angeles. Ravi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, we are so excited to speak to you and your background on scholarship is just so incredibly impressive. And I don't even know where to begin in terms of, first of all, you are the model minority embodied. I'm sure that might make you cringe just having done some of the background research for this interview and and you're quite humble. But you've gone to the most renowned educational institutions and you're really known for your wit, wisdom. I guess your hair is not purple anymore, but it used to be. And you are from the very renowned and respected McKinsey. You're an alum. You're also an author and independent management consultant. And so I am excited to speak to you on so many different topics. But I always like to ask my guests, especially those from our community and diaspora, how they landed upon this particular career trajectory. And what's interesting is you started out, you know, pursuing medicine. And again, I have the benefit, and I'll have these links, by the way, in the podcast notes of listening to some of your and watching some of your other interviews. And um, so you were pursuing medicine, and then you made a decision to make a a pivot from that, which I really respect, but would love to hear more about that from you. And also just what it was like growing up in Chicago and some of what influenced you early on. I know you have a passion for acting as well. So if you could speak to some of that, that'd be great. A lot to unpack there. Thank you for having me. You know, my story is similar to so many children of immigrants. And um, especially as I've gotten older, I really reflect on the bold and courageous move that so many families make to say, let's try something, let's move to a different continent and see what happens. Enormous amount of willingness in the face of potential risk to do that as 
so many, and you know, you've used the term diaspora with me, the, um, the mere fact that so many said, let's see what happens in other parts of the world, I find amazing. So my parents were in that group, came from Southern India to the United States in the early 70s. They brought two young children with them from India, myself and my sister. And, uh, you know, when we were little kids, you know, both of us were under the age of five at that point. You know, we both spoke the Southern Indian language of Kannada. Uh, not fluently, we spoke it as, you know, two-year-olds speak things, you know, you can't understand what they're always saying, but, you know, they get the basic gist of the vocabulary and so on. And I will say that it was, you know, a very typical immigrant experience in that my parents were trying to figure out how do we retain what we want to retain from Indian culture and how do we blend in to the melting pot of 1970s Chicago? We lived in a neighborhood as children, my sister and I, when we when our parents first came, we lived in a very modest apartment. It was nice. It was, you know, it was safe. It was fine. But it was in a very multicultural building, an apartment building with a lot of other immigrants. And there were people there from many different continents. And I remember the preschool we went to, you know, my two friends at the age of four or whatever, or five, when we were very small, my two friends, I remember their names now, even all these decades later, one was named Nenemeka, and he was from Africa, like he had just come from Africa with his parents. And another one was a little guy from, his parents had just come from Asia, and his name was Sung Lung Chang. And, you know, you got Ravi Rao, Nenemeka, and Sung Lung Chang, you know, as these three little preschool boys giggling and playing imaginary things as little boys do. And so that's how I learned about America. That's what my original childhood impression was. And my parents had come from India and they both had finished medical school in India. So I'm the child of two physicians. And um, early on, you know, sort of like a storekeeper's daughter or son, you know, goes to the store and learns about what it's like to run a store. Our parents, my sister and I, you know, on particular days, if they had to go into the office for something on their doctor's office into the hospital for a few hours on a weekend, they just dragged my sister and me. And we just kind of like walked by nurses stations and walked by patients <laughs> in wheelchairs. And it was just part of our upbringing. We didn't even think twice about the idea of standing in a hospital or working in a hospital. I don't think I initially said, I want to be a physician. It was not like top of mind for me, but I had been exposed to it and familiar with it. Many years later, you know, I found, and this is saying in high school and college, I did have aptitude for math and science. And so teachers, faculty advisors, they sort of said, you know, you're good at this. Why not pursue it? I didn't fully accept or reconcile the fact that my happiest moments were not learning, you know, the 20 amino acids, but <laughs> were, you know, learning brief passages of Shakespeare or learning to sing a song from a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. And I really thought 
theater would be the way to go for me. And I didn't necessarily make the distinction between acting on a stage, acting in a film or acting on television, but I knew somehow that's what always made me the happiest. Even as I think back to high school now, I kind of remember many pieces of, you know, the traditional learning parts, but I can remember our choral performances, our stage acting performances. But at the time, you know, I'm I'm older than people usually think. I'm in my 50s. You know, at the time there were not a lot of people of Indian descent on television and in film for me to look and say, "Oh, I can become that." So, I didn't pursue it. I didn't really listen to my internal instinct that was guiding me towards performance. And so, yeah, I'm making this a very long saga here. I apologize. But uh, I went to medical school. I felt something wasn't the right fit. The opportunity to join McKinsey came. Again, learned a lot, a wonderful experience, but it wasn't still exactly where I wanted to be. And so through a series of kind of smaller coincidences, we can go into those details if, if it's interesting, but I found myself interested and inspired to leave math and science and consulting behind and come to LA and live in Studio City, which is a neighborhood where my apartment is a couple of miles from Disney, a couple of miles from Warner Brothers, just down the street from Universal. And so be in the midst of people aspiring to do creative things. And uh, so that's where I've been now for six years. I didn't even make that connection. That is amazing that you are there now in Hollywood or, or close enough anyway. So that is really, really amazing and cool. And your story resonates with me so much because full-time roles at a Fortune 100, but I also had a deep passion. I think oftentimes if anybody's listening to this, that, you know, think back to what you enjoyed doing when you were younger and, and you have an acute knowledge of, of infants and, and babies. And, and we'll talk a little bit about that and how the brain works. But it's so fascinating. I also was enthralled with broadcast journalism, but I didn't, and I got a degree in that, but I did not see anybody that looked like myself. And it's certainly from our diaspora or community, it's not necessarily a career path that is encouraged always as opposed to STEM perhaps or or finance. And so here I find myself pursuing a podcast and being able to to work through some of those childhood dreams and still get some satisfaction around it. So I really, really appreciate what you said about that. And and yeah, you're right. I'm about the same age as you and things have certainly transformed in, in the acting landscape and so many pioneers, but it was a different situation in the 70s and 80s, without question. And thank you, Mindy Kaling, for opening the <laughs> right? That's right. Exactly. I'm glad you named it a million percent. Yes. And and so that that's a wonderful thing to, to see. And I did want to ask you, and I also can't see you at McKinsey, great firm, but I'm so glad that you, you know, had the wherewithal to branch out you know, on your own. And you are the author of Emotional Business, Inspiring Human Connectedness to Grow Earnings and the Economy. And that would is a title that would certainly get a CEO's attention, no doubt. But if they were to pick it up and and read it, I think it's it's such a compelling overview for not only leadership, but also team members, employees. And, and you kind of point to the fact that if you've ever felt ignored as a customer, humiliated by a teammate, drained by a workplace politics, 
or painfully isolated in a big company, then you've experienced the business effects of emotional disconnection. And I have to say, those emotions, what you laid out there, who hasn't? Who hasn't experienced that in any capacity, right? And so very powerful mandate or premise for this book. And you also go on to indicate that in today's knowledge-driven and service-centered economy, emotional excellence isn't idealism. It's a practical necessity for growth and retaining superior talent, which I want to definitely get into further. But any comments or thoughts on what I just laid out just now? And then I have some follow-up questions for you. You know, the way the dots connect and the threads line up for each person is different. But I actually think that for me, an awareness of people's emotions started back to early life starts with two factors. One is, again, being the immigrant kid. I was fortunate I was in an environment initially with many other immigrant kids. But the idea of what mom and dad even speak at home is different than what teachers speak at school as a language is like, wait, there are two perspectives here. There are two ways of being. Why does one person have this perception and this person has this perception? Why does one person act in this manner and the other person acts in this manner? And that being an immigrant child kind of quickly helps you recognize people are different. And you have to get to know that person to understand what's going on with them. The second thing that I think helped me early on understand the importance of emotion specifically was, again, this love of theater and theater teachers, acting teachers pushing you, even as a high school kid in a drama class, to say, why does this character say this? What is this character feeling when they say it? And having to really understand they feel not anger, but they feel pain or not that they are feeling attacked, but that they're feeling scared and understanding what a character feels helps that process. You know, the path then for a decade to kind of like learn about, you know, the neuroscience of things and biochemistry and all those things as part of science education. But the lessons learned about what's the other person thinking what are they experiencing? Why are they feeling what they do? That didn't leave me. And so finally, after the science education, after McKinsey, it, there came this kind of, I can remember the interaction. There was a, a business person I was speaking to, a client, and he said, you know, I, I wish we used our heart more around here. And this was like in 2005 or six. And uh, I said, what do you mean use your heart more? And uh, he said, you know, I wish we were more humanistic. I wish we understood people better. And it wasn't just about operational metrics. I wish we had like, you know, a kind of more awareness of people and their needs. And I kind of giggled and I said, oh, okay. And he says, why are you laughing? This isn't funny. And I said, no, I think it's a beautiful vision. I think it's so important. I just think it's funny that you think it happens in the heart. He says, what do you mean? (laughs) And I said, well, the heart is a muscular pump that gets... Uh, oxygenated blood to organs, but love and connection and attachment and all the things we feel emotionally, they don't happen in the chest. They happen in the brain. And he was like, what do you mean? And I gave him like two teaspoons worth of neuroscience. And he said, I want you to do a talk for my team. And that was in 2006. 
And uh, I've been doing the same talk for 15 years now. Oh, my goodness. No, that makes so much sense because a lot of leadership and, and companies want that data. They want the empirical information and an explanation scientifically or mathematically about what you're speaking to, because then they don't have to just talk about the heart as as you stated, as just emotion. There's a scientific reason behind all of this. And so I think what you're doing is so exceptionally needed. And that's probably why you are so busy with new clients all the time, because it's an intersection. We never want to talk about emotion in the workplace, ever. In fact, um, lo and behold, it, it would be the end of the world if you shed tears suddenly, if your manager was giving you feedback. And yet, to your point, we um, have cause to revisit that perspective. There's nothing shameful about emotion when you understand some of the drivers of it. And so I think what you're bringing together is really an intersection of not just that, but also the customer experience. So the employees, customers, and then the company in between. And recognizing the value of this is really revolutionary in my mind. And I'm so glad that you are seeing um, this recognition, you know, from the corporate side. I would also offer that we need a course in this in every MBA program across the country because we will, when I completed my MBA, it's wonderful. You, You review a lot of business cases and many times Harvard Business School cases, but the emotional component and recognizing the importance of that is often overlooked. And so I'd love to see a whole plethora of new business cases that really are focused upon this. Any comments or thoughts on that? I stand behind your, uh, your <laughs> proposal. Go for it. Yeah. I know, you're right. You know, it's kind of just like any other training to do a career, you know, in, in medical school, what do you study? You study like, literally thousands of pages of textbooks on anatomy and biochemistry and then thousands more pages on things like pathology and pharmacology. And you have to learn all those things in order to do the job. But what hits you the first few days you're a medical student who actually then has to do your clinical rotations is you need all that knowledge to do the job without question. But the job is often sitting there while a five-year-old is getting stitches in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. You're sitting there when a 72-year-old has heart attack and her husband and you know children and perhaps grandchildren come to the hospital and they look to you to help them in their moment of need. And nothing prepares you for that. And in the same way in business, yeah. you can study all the finance curves and you can do all the operational metrics and you need those, right? The business doesn't run without that knowledge. But what is the task day to day? What's the thing that kind of hits people in the face, particularly when they reach management level? But even when they just start out, what does it mean to be on a team? What does it mean to have to give people feedback? What does it mean to listen to a customer who's angry and not get defensive or angry yourself? That's a totally different skill set for any of those roles, any of those first jobs. And then even as you've been doing it for a long time and you have to manage others, what do you do with the employee who's stressed? What do you do with the employee who suddenly becomes very unmotivated after feeling attacked by a comment about her gender or her orientation or something like that in the workplace? How do you handle the questions of diversity and inclusion and 
What's interesting now, I, I see a, a new term really appearing in a lot of the job titles. It's now D-E-I-B. It's uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and this is the new one, belonging. So wow. I think companies are starting to get that this is a, a very difficult part of running a business because whether you're talking about keeping good talent, whether you're talking about uh, dealing with customers who have access to social media, everybody has an emotional driver within them. You know, as much as we want to kind of idealize everybody in economics as purely rational, everything is utilitarian, everybody does everything kind of by a mechanical formula in their, in their mind, it's not. People make all kinds of impulsive reactions, impulsive decisions. Not saying you can run a business with that, but to ignore that it exists in your customers, to ignore that it exists in denial in your employees. And I don't know if that's going to ultimately lend you the tools to manage the, the enterprise in the long term, because you're going to have ups and downs that are unpredictable. You're going to have wild comments on social media from a customer. You're going to have all kinds of challenges that are strategic and operational and financial, of course, but you're also, especially in, in this modern hyper-connected world, you're going to have a lot of emotion flowing into and out of and around the company. So what do you do with that? You have to have an emotional toolkit on communications, on reading people, on understanding your own brain physiology to deal with all that. Well, no, that's absolutely correct. And it's interesting because I would say that even as I stated about MBA programs, so I happened to attend um, the Fisher College of Business at The Ohio State University. And I was um, briefly speaking with Dean McKeeja, Neil McKeeja, about diversity. I was one of only two people of color in the class, myself and another person of Indian origin, a man. And I said, what is the stumbling block? you know, getting more diverse um, student uh, body in here. And he said, we try, we relentlessly try. But what's interesting is that we did study a Harvard business case entitled The Parable of the Sadhu. And it's this interesting dilemma of uh, mountaineers that encounter a sadhu who appears to be um, basically near death. And the dilemma they face is, should we save him? I mean, we're going to, you know, be going backwards in our trek of this mountain, or do we leave him where he is? And I was probably the only one that volunteered. Look, if he's a sadhu in Hinduism, look, they devote their entire life to spiritual worship. And so my perspective was, he does not want to be saved. We're not afraid of death. We embrace reincarnation. And he would not want you to save him or prolong his life. He would want you to leave him to face whatever it is that he's supposed to face. And it was just a compelling argument, but I would guess that's the first time they've ever heard a diverse perspective. And so then if you revisit all of the curriculum from this perspective too, I think what you're doing is really fascinating. And I think it extends across so many different areas and spaces. So academia, as you stated, and definitely the corporate sector. So I don't know if you have comments on that, but I do have a follow-up question for you. I mean, I think you've said it well already. There are, whether you teach it through cases or whether you teach it through discussion to just allow people of different perspectives to learn from each other, you know, there is a, a broad way of being a human. And I think that everybody fits into one exact package is very tough. You know, 
the book Emotional Business that I authored, you know, the idea that permeates through the book is there's not one emotion. There are, you know, as many emotions as there are people. There are common patterns, but they're not so consistent that you can mathematically uh, pick exactly what somebody is going to feel at a moment in time. You can influence that, but you have to understand that it's about agile thinking. It's about coming in with a plan, but adapting to the circumstance. Whether that's for a strategy is one thing, but it's even for one encounter with one customer. You can have an expectation of how it'll go, but then you have to be ready for anything and everything that comes. And where do you build that? How do you get there? It's, you know, through the kinds of discussions that you set, you know, you have to listen to different people and learn what it means to listen and not just sort of sit quietly till it's your turn to shout at the other person, but actually take in what they're saying. That's a hard skill to teach because it's not just pure memorization of a book and then spitting it back on a test. It's actually growing your own human behavioral skill set. And that takes time. It doesn't happen by reading a two-page blog post. It doesn't happen by watching a four-minute YouTube video. It happens from being in a room immersed with other perspectives in a discussion setting and allowing people's real experiences to come forth. That's hard to ask and hard to organize, but I'm glad that schools of business and other organizations are taking that opportunity to say, how do we do this? Because we do have diverse people. And the hard part is, just kind of as one final note on it, as hard as it is to achieve external diversity, gender, skin color, and uh, attributes like age, it's even harder to really create diversity of the internal. How do people think? Who is more creative and divergent in their thinking? Who's more logical and convergent in their thinking? How do we put both those types of brains in a room to innovate and create the best product possible? Wow, that is an amazing point. Absolutely. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, oh, so important. And and I don't know that companies look at that enough. So you do create a winning team, to your point. And I did want to ask you, before we started recording, we were chatting a bit, and I mentioned that I can imagine that a lot of predicators for why clients seek you out, there's probably a huge list of them, having spoken with you just this brief time and researched your background, but the recruitment and retention of talent, great talent, is probably number one on the list of companies. I know that it is for mine, and the pandemic has only underscored this issue. Seems as though an excess of jobs, not enough talent. And I want to ask you, is this indeed at the top of the list of, or one of the reasons why companies are seeking you out right now? It is. There is, a, as you noted, the unprecedented type of work environment changes because of the pandemic, hybrid models, and so on. But I also think the pandemic forced people to re-examine what is it that provides them satisfaction, growth, and so on, as well as income from their jobs. And right now, I think this is kind of, again, it's earth shatteringly new to some organizations. It's obvious and been a long time part of the thinking for others, but employees join your company because of the company, 
but they leave your company because of their manager and the culture. People feel at work and they spend hour after hour after hour, whether they're at home virtually at work or, or in an office. If you're a tough place to show up at every day, people get burned out. And it's not that it's tough because the work is demanding. There are plenty of environments where the work is endless, but because the people in that environment are connected emotionally and support each other as opposed to backstab each other, compete with each other, and so on. You know, it's just shocking to me how many different organizations do their metrics, their KPIs, their key performance indicators, unit by unit without a holistic view. And unit A is incentivized and have their annual bonuses based on a set of metrics that the only way they can achieve is they essentially undermine the efforts of a different unit who are trying to do an exact opposite thing because somebody said, well, well, we have to optimize the metrics in this unit. And so you essentially pit two different units against each other in constant competition. There's no way you're going to not have those people burned out. They feel like there's competition and threat coming from within their own company. And the ultimate thing about talent recruitment and talent retention is about, it feels like from a logical point of view, it should be about salary and opportunities for advancement and things. And those are all important. It's not like you can't or shouldn't do those. But if you're not noticing the emotional experience of your team, of your employees, and particularly for groups that are underrepresented that you're trying to do more diverse hiring for, you know, I mean, I'll say it in a somewhat crass manner. It doesn't matter how much you do on diversity. If you're a crappy place to work, you're still a crappy place to work. (laughs) So a lot of this is kind of really addressing the culture of the emotion underlying it. Maya Angelou, the 1970s writer, performer, you know, of so much fame who passed a few years ago, I was fortunate to hear her speak in person in Baltimore in 1994 when I was in school. And she had this quote that she opened her talk with that has stayed with me. And I think many, many people know this, but it's it's such a a powerful statement today as it was when I heard it uh, those decades ago when she said it during her talk. People will forget what you say. People will forget what you do. People never forget how you make them feel. And so that's what it comes down to for companies. How are you making your employees feel? If it's bad, then, you know, you can keep hiring, keep spending money on recruitment, keep spending money on onboarding, keep spending money on new training programs, and then you're just going to keep spending because nobody will want to stay there. So talent integration, talent recruitment, new platforms, all good, but You can put all that effort to bringing them in, but if they don't want to stay six months because it's such a a tough place to be, you know, a new fancy, you know, system for resume review, the applicant tracking or a a fancy social media way of, you know, talking to potential applicants. Hey, those are things are great, but if it's a tough place to work, it's kind of a futile effort. You've got to fix the problem where the real problem is. 
Oh, that couldn't be more true. And, you know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking that as a community, as a diaspora, I think there's a lot of books out that refer to the fact that now, obviously, two of the largest tech companies in the world have South Asians at the helm of them. But that's an industry. And Silicon Valley is an example of an industry as well as several others where they're just not known for being fun places to work. And what's interesting is there's some cross-cultural training that I think could occur as well. Just speaking for our diaspora, I can't make generalities, but I feel a bit more comfortable speaking about this. And that is learning some of these soft skills, right? You could have your MBA from Harvard, Wharton, wherever. But to your point, if you are not engaging and as a manager, make your employees feel horrible or those that report to you, I don't know they're going to escalate as far within the corporate ladder. Although if you do, then like you stated, that's a a mistake on on behalf of the corporation and they'll be seeking you out (laughs) for troubleshooting. But I wonder if you find culturally some nuances. Um, I happen to work for a company that's not based in the United States. And I see some of the influence as it pertains to taking time off. Very recommended. Take two weeks off. I couldn't believe it when I heard that. That would never be something that would be contemplated by most U.S. companies, and it's not something you'd be encouraged to do necessarily. So I just want to get your thoughts on that, if maybe could take some lessons from our global peers. I forgot which country it is. I think it's Iceland that has done a, has completed a recent experiment on the impact on the economy of going to a four-day work week instead of five. And they found, as I recall, you know, it actually did not lead to a loss of productivity. And it, in fact, may have helped on things like employee engagement. It's small country, small study. So you can't immediately generalize it to everything, but it's intriguing. In terms of, you know, where companies are headed in different places of the world, you know, you used a term earlier that, that sort of made me pause for a second. I don't know that if I'm saying companies to be emotionally healthy, that it necessarily means they're fun. There may not be a lot of fun and still be very emotionally healthy. For example, it could be very much a place to grow, very much a place to learn a lot because they place a value on the emotional elements of mentorship and sponsorship from senior leaders. It may not be particularly funny or fun. There may be no uh, pool table in the break room. There may be (laughs) no fun uh, movie nights or anything, but they still are very connected, even if they're more on the serious side. But what they can't be is toxic to each other. That's the real thing that my work has tried to point out is, ultimately, you will lose money as a business. I can't say it any more plainly than that. Even if you shout at people to get them to be productive right now and tell people constantly to get back to work because you think that helps the business stay profitable. It's just the opposite. It has to be that if you want people to stay on task, you have to give them a reason why the tasks itself or the work itself, the collaboration itself is rewarding and enriching. And other countries have more of a recognition of that without question, uh, comparing it to the US. I'm not saying that the US model is wrong, but it does have its own financial consequences. You're going to burn out people. You're going to have to spend more on recruiting, more on other things that take resources away from the business. If that's a trade-off that historically has seemed possible or reasonable, 
So be it. But I think now, particularly post-pandemic, I think companies will even more say, this is too financially draining to constantly have people leave. And we don't have the infrastructure to kind of be a revolving door of rotating new people and constantly only to watch them walk away three months or six months later. I've seen great turnarounds. I, I was working with one client that was getting pummeled on the website glass door where employees, oh, yeah. former employees were just scathing. And we together, I was, I was their partner in it. They really took on the effort to revisit fundamental things like how managers managed and the way managers were then evaluated on their management. And we put a much higher emphasis on emotional skills, emotional intelligence, and they invested a lot of time. It didn't happen in a week or a weekend. You know, It was an ongoing effort for more than a year. But 18 months after they completed the first wave of the initiative, they, you know, they won a very prestigious customer experience award. So, you know, I think these turnarounds are possible. They're possible everywhere in the world, but it does take leadership and middle managers to say, yeah, we're going to treat people differently as a first starting point to build on for other great things to happen. Well, that makes so much sense. And the one company that came to mind, and again, from my time in business school is Southwest Airlines. And uh-huh. I don't endorse any company, but oh my goodness, there's just cases and cases about how much employees really love working for that company. And and you see it. And I think the bottom line is they seem to do more with less. And But it really starts with their corporate foundation and what they place a priority on. And they do uh, have fun there. I will they agree. They do. Yeah. And they're fun flights as well. They actually will partake in some humor and everything, even in, in missed, um, even these days with the customers. And, you know, I cannot believe where we are in our time together because I still have so many more questions for you. So hopefully you will come back and join us again. But based on your vast experience in neuroscience and for any of our listeners today, I was wondering if you could speak to us about the importance of routine, because I know that you have a morning routine, and I want you to speak to how that actually activates neurotransmitters. I'm looking at at some of your past interviews and, and recognizing, wow, I might be able to be more productive if I sort of am aligned with some of the science behind this. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. I think there is a very good and important emphasis on self-care being on what we do to the face and from the neck down. We'll get massages, we'll get nails done, we'll go for a run, we'll weight lift, we'll drink more water, you know, all kinds of great wellness and self-care things. But I think sometimes we don't do enough on the self-care of the brain. One of the things that is so hard in today's environment with the stress of work is you have to have downtime away from your device. I try to start the day away from the any device. I, I, it's an effort and I don't always succeed, but you have to allow yourself 10 or 15 minutes in the morning before you look at your phone. In fact, when I find myself in periods constantly checking the phone, I find myself unable to relax during the day. 
And I find myself kind of jittery and nervous, like what's on my phone? What's on my phone? What's on my phone? Did they like my post? Did I get another email? Is something <laughs> urgent I have to attend to? And if at least you can give yourself 10 minutes in the morning in quiet time, I think it's extremely important. The second thing that I think does involve the device these days, which is totally fine, in my morning routine is I try to drop an unexpected positive note to somebody who I haven't connected with in a while. So on a, literally on like four or five days a week, I don't necessarily always do it every single day, but I just send a note and say, hi, we haven't connected in a while. If you have a moment, text me back or you know, let's do a call at some point in the next week or two. And I don't just mean with business contacts to kind of keep them refreshed as business contacts, but more like just ask people how they're doing. And especially when you ask it from a place of just, I just want to know, how are you doing? Without any need to want something from them and so on, people are extraordinarily open about what they're experiencing. I think the pandemic has made them more so, but I find it nourishing and refreshing for me throughout the day to sometimes just hear back from somebody. Oh my gosh, mm. we should really talk. I want to tell you about this new thing I'm doing, or I just want somebody to talk to for a while. I think the one phrase that somebody taught me a long time ago that I think is the most important sentence I know how to say is when somebody's talking to me and they say, oh my gosh, you know, you're doing this, Ravi, or oh, I listened to this podcast, or I saw your TED talk. I just did a TED talk. And people, you know, throw this attention to me. The, the most important thing for me to say is, how about you? Those three words can carry so much impact to somebody else's life that if you just say, so, you know, how about you? What's going on with you? Sometimes people will go on for conversations. And they're like, hey, I just want to check in. And the other person will be like talking and talking and talking and talking. And in a way, uh, you know, becomes entirely one-sided or they're like, or they do the kind of like flippant, like, so how are you? And then the moment the person starts to tell you, they cut them off and start talking about themselves. But I, I find that just that simple phrase, how about you can open doors to being connected to others and try to get past the like, oh, I'm fine, kind of reflects to, to actually get into the real emotional underpinnings. Um, that's how we keep the world going. That's how we keep the world going through a pandemic or through an economic downturn or anything that hits us. We are very fragile alone, but you know, together we can do anything. Well, I love that concept because you sort of give a gift to yourself by reaching out to someone so that later in your day, you might hear from them and it offers a connectedness then perhaps in the next 24, maybe even sooner than that 48 hour uh, period where it's not about you. It's actually focused upon somebody else. And, you know, I did read in one of your other interviews that you talk about three things, finishing a task. And I think you give an example of paying a bill. I just had that experience the other day. I actually got something accomplished and it felt so good to start my day that way, right? Because it's just like I had gone to collections and wasn't supposed to, but somehow I got that sorted out, a medical bill, and it felt so empowering. Um, and then expressing gratitude. Oh my goodness. It was just sort of what you just you know, uh, by reaching out to a friend, you're sort of saying, hey, I, I'm checking on you. And then getting excited about something in the future. In a way, if you send a note out to a friend, yeah, you can look forward to their response, you know, 
going forth. So these are just such great tips. And I think you're right, especially in this day and age with the pandemic still looming. I mean, largely gone, but we don't know what's next. These are just incredibly important tips, I think. And you definitely speak to the fact that we do a lot as far as our body and wellness. But you're right, the mind, and I I hate to bring up a tragic statistic, but the suicide rate, you know, this country has faced since the pandemic is just staggering. And it's so sad because I do, I think that speaks to sort of some of what you've indicated. And I cannot believe we are where we are in this podcast. And I just want to ask, do you have any other closing comments for our audience before we close out? You're going to be occupied. I'm occupied. Everybody's occupied with the tasks that have to get done in our daily life, the laundry, the case report, the PowerPoint. But pause now and then and ask yourself, how am I doing? Just ask yourself that question because just knowing where you are in your own emotional state and your own emotional needs not only helps yourself, but it also helps you to learn to pay attention to others and what they might be experiencing too. How am I doing? How are you doing? Those are amazing words and the sentiment behind it. And I just feel encouraged to be frank with you having this conversation that you are out there helping companies <laughs> around the world because they're in great hands. I mean, if we could all just, you know, include that sentiment that you just expressed a bit more. And I'm glad that you're on the front lines helping companies to recognize that. And just cannot thank you enough for joining us today, Ravi Rao. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 